Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Well, before we totally launch into this week's episode, also, you know, give us a star rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to take it a little step further, please leave a review. And then last, you know, make sure to follow us on Instagram, um, where we put extra content and memes and, you know, and people often are really wonderful and generous. And they actually share a lot of this content that I post. um, And I repost and I really appreciate it when you see a trend or you see an article on a trend and you send it to me because Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not looking at everything. So it's nice to have all these eyes out there. And um, it's that's awesome. Um, so you can find us at underscore the underscore department, you know, obviously, obviously, um, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and um, if you would like to check out any of our show notes or the links or read the articles that we're talking about, you can find it on our website, the department.world. And if you have a suggestion for an episode, you want to tell us about a trend we're missing, you can call our hotline number or send us a voice memo that you've recorded on your phone or computer. And you can find all of the details for contacting us on our website. Once again, that's the department.world. All right. So why are we so fascinated about true crime? You know, like the, the, uh, the episode we had before, we really did kind of dissect the history behind true crime, but the fascination and is definitely one of the triggers mm-hmm. for the trend and for how it's it's grown and spread so quickly since 2014. Is it just morbid curiosity? Is it voyeurism? Why are people so damn intrigued? And what's the story with the actual trend? So I, of course, did some digging and went to the professionals to hear what they had to say about why people are so crime curious. But first, I'd like to ask you guys all, what you think is the reason why true crime is so compelling. We like to hear bad stories. <laughs> it's like why tabloids are popular and people love to read tabloid yeah. stories about people having affairs or getting divorced or wearing bad outfits or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Exactly. Like, I don't get it either. You know, I, I started listening to an episode of Freakonomics earlier today that I have not finished, but it was basically about like why – is the news in the United States, especially like local news, just like so ridiculously dark and focused on crime and despair? It's the same thing. Yeah. I think it's the, it's same, the same thing. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, the morbid curiosity is definitely a big part of it. And, um, and for me, I think it often is like, the, the the true crime stories that like I think get me the most and uh, are the ones that um, ha- display so clearly how unjust our criminal justice system is, and so like I, mm-hmm. I just get this sense of like um, I don't know that like I want to do something about this, but um, but yeah, I mean it. I think that obviously salacious true crime is interesting, but like. Um, and 
I think that there's also something about wanting to see like justice play out, especially in something like making a murder. Yes. That one was fascinating because it was all about, you know, pinning a crime on someone and how far they went. Well, and I think we all want to believe that the life could be fair, you know, that like if something bad happened, when bad things happen, justice is served. And then it just like turns out that's not really the case. I remember, um, one, sorry, really quickly, there was this one documentary um, called Brothers Keeper about these, like, two, um, these brothers, I think, in uh, northern New York State somewhere who are, like, living in just, like, ab- abject poverty. And I think both um, ha- suffering from, like, developmental dis- disabilities, but, like, they, um, I can't remember exactly what happened now, but I just, I just remember seeing so clearly through the documentary, um, a crime happened between one of them. I can't remember if one killed the other. I think that might've been what happened. Um, anyway, the prosecutor just cared about the media attention and like, um, just wanted to like win so that he could advance his career and did not care that he was like completely railroading these people who were essentially defenseless. And cause I think it was three brothers living together mm-hmm. and one of them um, died under mysterious circumstances. And it was, it's like, I think those are the ones that really like grabbed me. Well, there's a lot of interesting theories, you know, obviously not every, you know, there's a lot of interesting theories because there's a lot of different reasons why people like true crime. And it's not a surprise that humans are just naturally attracted to darker things. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, when I was researching this, I clearly am not the only person that asked this question because there was a lot of <laughs> articles on it. I can see that. <laughs> and, <laughs> like a lot. I found so much, but you know, I, I had to, you know, you know, just kind of narrow it down. So the irony is not lost on any of us. Um, there are quite a few of these articles that explore why murder shows can actually be like relaxing to anyone who's not an, an actual psych- psychopath. Which is really interesting. So, in, indulging in a quiet but enjoyable evening of viewing footage of a sinister horror, making us confront the things we fear most before we tuck into bed at night, <laughs> seems it. It definitely seems ironic that that's something that actually is like a pastime. You know, what is it? True crime, glass <laughs> of wine, in bed by nine. <laughs> So, in an article for Tyla called Why Do I Find True Crime So Relaxing, A Psychologist Explains All, the author Joanna Freeman interviews Lee Chambers, environmental psychologist and well-being consultant, who has this to say, and I quote, Morbid curiosity is one of the reasons why true crime can be so compelling. To explore things that are usually far-fetched from the realms of fiction, knowing that this, is a- that this actually happened does spark a curiosity. We get to sleep or to step into an evil pair of shoes, indulge in gore and gruesomeness, step out and play detective, all while having a clean pair of hands. He adds, human intrigue in evil is something that we will all that will always be present. 
explained that a key reason we find our uh, find the lives of criminals so fascinating is because their brains work so differently to ours, mm. which I think actually is is an, a, a very interesting explanation. Where you yeah you you don't you can explore these things that are you know they're true um, and true life is stranger than fiction, but also you're just around someone and you're experiencing someone who is just so morally different than, you know, most everyone, you know. Mm-hmm. So in another article, British psychologist, Emma Kenny is interviewed in an article for the BBC called is our growing obsession with true crime, a, pro- a problem. Um, Emma says that watching crime shows can trigger chemical reactions in our body while we watch while also affirming our moral views about right and wrong so it's like this mixture of adrenaline and dopamine but knowing that we're safe so it's kind of like that feeling that you get when you watch a horror movie and why those are so compelling Um, and then in a times article about jack the ripper an an interviewer with uh, social historian hallie rubenhold has her own theory and she says I think our obsession with serial killers fundamentally comes down to something really human, which is that we are afraid we won't be able to recognize those people in our society. There's this protective need to inform oneself about what's out there so you can identify them. And yet she also believes that the stories that unnerve us the most may also be the ones um, that most deserve to be revisited. Hmm. Um yeah, I mean, there's actually a lot more than this, um, and I'm about to get into one about the cr- the true crime female <laughs> paradigm. Uh, but but before I get into it, any 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 reactions to these? Yeah, these, I mean, I, ironically, quotes? I think I was just talking about ones with a sense of justice, but like I think because of my experience, uh, for instance, sitting down to watch Making a Murderer. Um, was actually traumatizing because it it sort of like uh, triggered like this, the feelings of injustice that I had for what had happened to like my ex's family. And so like the, um, it it can be really hard and, and same with cereal. Like I found that really traumatizing, Um, particularly I think in that one, like, um, but I think because it's triggering both these these um, experiences, but also like um, what one of those quotes said about um, your sense of like moral outlook, out your moral outlook in the mm-hmm. world, like reinforces that. And I think for me, especially ones that are about sort of the injustice that people go through, or like people who've been in prison, wrongly imprisoned, or whatever, like those ones sometimes are. Um, can be traumatizing for me. But I think Serial was especially so because I kept feeling like they were just trying to disprove the prosecution's original case rather than, like, starting from scratch and following the evidence to a Mm -hmm. conclusion of, like, who actually did this. And so I kept going, like, why are you doing this? Anyway, that's that's me. Yeah, I can agree with that, too. I mean, I I think... Like we talked about unsolved mysteries in the last episode and how frustrating it can be to not have that answer. Um, And I think a lot of modern true crime, you know, whether it's a podcast or a documentary, 
realizes that, you know, like the average listener or viewer doesn't want to consume something without a happy ending or some sort of solution. And I, I don't know. I just feel like a lot of the content I've been, you know, consuming myself really works really hard to give you a tidy answer at the end. And I find it, I I find that it's, if you start presenting a crime with an end goal in mind like that, uh, it's never going to be a really reliable document about the st- of yeah. the story, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I've just I've been noticing that more and more lately, and finding it kind of frustrating. That doesn't mean I've stopped listening to Dateline, but you know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because Serial didn't have an end. You know, it still was like really open ended. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, that's one where it worked, right? Mm-hmm. But people, I mean. People were so obsessed that there mm-hmm. was going to be some sort of positive outcome. And remember, I want to say it was like a year later, you know, the ca- there was talk of the case being mm-hmm. reopened of a retrial. And I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, that didn't happen. And I think a lot of people moved yeah. on after that. Yeah, and, th- and that's the thing of like, you know, um, getting into uh, Mike's experience like my ex-wife versus her adoptive dad's biological sons their family became characters for people to consume and to comment about and like i think one of the things that sort of troubled me about true crime or um certain kinds of true crime because i think it's like I think making things about crime is, is totally healthy, especially if someone is doing it from, you know, respectfully and like trying to think through all the perspectives, et cetera. But, um, you know, there was a, an episode of girls, um, in one of the later seasons where, um, uh, what's her name? Lena Dunham's character is sitting down with her dad and like, he, apparently he's come out as bisexual or something. And, um, he says, you know, I was just watching a TV show about a guy who did that. And she was like, are you talking about the staircase? Cause that didn't end well for him. And it's like, I remember I, <laughs> it's just like really, um, ups- upsetting, I guess. Or it's like weird to be both like the, mm-hmm. the people I think, they watch this and like this person is a character to them. They don't know them. Like this is a story. They're there because they want to be like entertained and engaged. But yeah, it's voyeuristic. And like, Mm -hmm. but the reality is like, these are people's lives. And sometimes the media is manipulates the outcome of, uh, of the situation in a way that can lead to its own form of injustice. Um, which I think actually HBO is making a fictionalized version of the staircase with Colin Firth playing my, uh, father-in-law and, um, the, um, that's part of the premise is that like looking at like how the media actually sort of shaped the outcome of this particular event. And sometimes it can do it good in good ways. Mm. Like somebody who would have been railroaded, uh, is going to get, you know, be acquitted, um and sometimes it can do that in bad ways i mean it it definitely created like fan frenzy as well oh Um, yeah you were saying that he would get all all these yeah people like i'll I'll go to a party and um, people be like oh man i love the staircase i'm like yeah i'm I'm in that 
And then, like, they want to know everything. Like, do you think he did it? That's the number one question. Do you think he did it? Do you think he did it? And, um, and you know, I've been curious myself at times, like, with people, for instance, with the director of the series when we were before. There was a hearing in 2011 called a motion for appropriate relief, I think. And um, the basically the point of the hearing was that the guy who was the forensic blood analyst for the state of North Carolina in this case um, had lied in hundreds of cases about his expertise, including uh, oh. Margaret Stads. And um, try was doing these like blood stringing techniques, which are, um, you know, great for like TV, but not actually scientifically valid. And I mean, I think they can be insightful for people who are really well trained in how to use them properly, but this person had never taken any training in it. Um, so he didn't literally didn't know what he was doing. He hadn't been like recertified in new techniques since like the 1990s or late eighties or something. And like, Anyway, so there were a lot of people um, who went to jail, um, many of them for life, because of this guy's, like, complete. So when when I was meeting with the director, I was like, so do you think that Michael is um, innocent? And he gave me this look, like, mm. <laughs> and he was like, I don't know, but I don't think justice was done. And I think that, to me, like, that's... Uh, that's where I ultimately landed with it. Um, but, but yeah, like um, I, I was interviewed by this guy who was a showrunner for a TV show that was on NBC called um, trial and error. That was like a comedy version um, of Michael's life set, Wait, what? set in, um, <laughs> set in uh, South Carolina. And he was a poetry professor, not a novelist. But um, but the guy was like, the staircase is my all time favorite TV show, and you're like a celebrity to me. And I was like, this is so weird. But you were also saying that he had a he had a lot of like female um, fans. Yes, that would I did say yes. Uh, pen pal with him. The, the editor of the documentary, uh, uh, the staircase, like. They, they formed a relationship while he was in prison. And then um, this woman who was a TV producer from Australia, like uprooted her life and moved to North Carolina um, to sort of help Michael's brother, like get him out of prison once he was in there to like drum um, to see if, what arguments they could make legal arguments to sort of overturn his conviction. And, um, and like every time I, we stayed with her a, a few times and every time like she would, get a letter from him in the morning. She would open it up like really giddy and like, just read it and like reread it. And it's like, and all sorts of people. And he kind of welcomed that attention. Yeah. People get hooked into the story and then all of a sudden, and, um, all of a sudden, yeah, it's like, they're, celeb like celebrity. Fun. So that actually kind of, uh, well, that kind of falls into, <laughs> to the, to the true, the, the true crime female paradigm a little bit. Um, so there's been actually a bunch of studies over the years looking at the gender ratio in true crime media consumption. And like from books to podcasts, it's been consistently weighing really heavy, uh, on the, on the side of women as the most avid consumers. So, which I, of course, like to call the true crime female paradigm. And a 2018 study that found uh, found that 73% of true crime podcast listeners are women. Wow. Oh. Interesting. Can you That's believe that? 
And so, and I know that this is a slightly outdated number, but according to a 2010 study, because obviously, you know, 2014 was the tipping point for podcasts. So where else were they going? But a 2010 study by social psycho uh, psychological and personality science, which is, which is a mouthful also, um, it says women dramatically outnumber men as consumers of true crime, hypothesizing that women may be especially drawn to this type of genre as a subconscious way of regaining control over the real life or really actually perceived threats that they face. And by visualizing how they might react or get away in a similar situation to the one that's happening on screen. So murder shows may be like cathartic or something, you know, and provide them with a, mm -hmm. a worst case scenario dress rehearsal of sorts, one that helps people prepare for, for the unthinkable. Yeah, I think that that's actually, a, that's a lot of the reason why, like, people also really want to watch horror movies and stuff, because I think that it's sort of, it's a safe way of exposing mm -hmm. yourself to something that you can be afraid of, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, a, a potentially safe way of, like, dealing with that fear. Interestingly, also, this is just a little spinoff, but women make up a relatively small percentage of law enforcement jobs. But they're 78% of forensic student, students in the United States, which is more than double their rate in other science fields. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that, that's, I think that's a, that's a fascinating statistic. Well, it's all thanks to forensics files. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they clearly, clearly they're the avid, avid consumer okay. here. Okay, so they don't make new episodes of that show, right? I don't know. Wait, I thought know. that they were working on it or something. I don't know, but that's another one. Like, if you're in a hotel room, Forensic mm -hmm. Files is probably on. And, like, there are some episodes of that that I've seriously seen, like, ten times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and and like, it's it's also, whenever they're streaming it, it's on, or I guess not streaming it, they're showing it, it's on cable, and it's just constantly broken up by commercials. Oh, my. But, like. It drives me nuts. The worst commercials, too. Oh, the worst For, like, lawsuits <laughs> for medical devices yeah. and, like, pills that make men more manly, mm. you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I really um, need to start watching these so commercials. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clearly, clearly. Um, I, one thing that has always been my takeaway from Forensic Files is, like, a lot of people live in really dirty, messy houses because you'll, <laughs> like, that'll be what gets me. Makes I'll be like, oh, good? my God, what is that stain in the background? <laughs> Clean that rug, you know. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's like independent of the crime that went there. There's just like <laughs> stuff everywhere, or like tissues all over the floor. And I'm like, oh my god, you know, like they're, you know, How I embarrassing. mean, we're going to probably talk about this ten times more. But I do think that there is a way in which we, as we're watching these things, we put ourselves in the story and like how it would turn out better for us if we, because now we're all smart about protecting ourselves from crime, right? Like that. Like, like I would never do that. Right. And I watch yeah. these things and I'm like, well, I'm going to make sure that our house is clean just in case <laughs> a crime happens here. Like I don't want to be on TV with tissues and a stained carpet. Like I get that in my head. Like it'll be different if it happens to me, which mm -hmm. is like, you know, a way we pl we play it out in a million different ways, right? Like, well, I would carry a stun gun or like, I would never like drive alone or like, you know, we, you get into all these things where you're like, I, it would be a different outcome for me if this happened to me. Right. And like, that's just one more way that my brain carries it forward. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So there is uh, this fascinating read from Mother Jones. It's writer P.E. Moskowitz came out with this super interesting view on the genre titled True Crime is Cathartic for Women. It's also cop propaganda. Yeah. That's kind of what we were yep. talking about. It's, yep. oh, it's a really good, it's a really good article, but I'm going to pull, do a couple pull, pull quotes from it. And um, Moskowitz says, you know, while there are popular shows that investigate mistakes made by cops and judges, the vast majority treat the police as undeniable heroes and frame, frame punishment and imprisonment as a form of feminism. If only more men were behind bars, women could begin to thrive. Evil is out there. It's okay to call the police. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend in college tell me, and I think it really speaks to the privileged background she came from, that if you ever got too drunk and you were worried you couldn't make it home, you should just go find a police officer to take you home. Yeah. What? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Um, wow yeah like like they're taxis <laughs> i don't know and i was like huh and i remember repeating that to one of my friends years later in a kind of like well if you get too drunk i guess you could just get a police officer to take you home and they were like you mean to jail <laughs> or like you know molest you or beat you or do like nine million other things and i was like no right i'm like i'm i'm super afraid of the police i wouldn't do that but that is true that is what true crime not all, hashtag not all true crime, right? But a lot right. of it teaches you, like, don't worry. The police yeah, the are going to stay are the day. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, in, in one more um, quote from Moskowitz, it goes, uh, the rap on true crime is that it's a form of rubbernecking, which I love that word. Me it too. totally is a form yeah. of rubbernecking, a way to gawk at other people's misfortune. But that's not entirely right. True crime validates. It allows us to feel collectively or often not allowed to discuss in public. Men are fucking scary. The world is fucking scary. And we have every fucking right to be scared. This is not to excuse the genre's moral defects. It's only to point out that the failings of true crime podcasts do not lie in their basic premise, that women are harmed by men, because that is undoubtedly true. The problem is... In their assumption that increased awareness, surveillance, policing, and imprisonment are the yeah. remedies. The problem is true crimes yeah, politics. Exactly. I completely agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. At least, yeah. oftentimes, I, I, I clearly um, believe that there are good true crime things out there, but yeah, especially ones that are geared towards exposing the injustices of the system rather than reinforcing mm-hmm. them. And I think Honestly, that's true of most police shows as well, that they just reinforce, they normalize and reinforce the idea that, like, the police are the only way that we could potentially deal with these problems. CSI, for instance, like, the the things that they are, that they purport to be capable of discovering may or may not be true. I don't really know, but I can say from experience that the reality of forensics as practiced in most parts of America is way different than what like, um, you know, it's, it's not like PhD scientists who have like physics degrees. It's like high school, like, uh, football coaches who like, um, just aren't interested in detail. And that's not true everywhere. I mean, I know people who are forensic scientists, and I'm like, I 
trust that this person is like doing a very good job. But um, forensics is not uh, all that as reliable as people think it is, and it doesn't. Um, it's not practiced well. It's not the not the magic yeah, it's bullet. Not the magic bullet. It helps. It isn't, and it it takes it it takes a long time. Yeah, you know, to get any information. Like for example, when my partner died, you know, he died alone, and so you know, like that automatically, like there has to be a criminal investigation of some sort there. It took three months to get the autopsy results back. And that is pretty standard that you spend three months wondering what happened to your loved one. And then, you know, it was like, okay, was the police going to do something about this? And it's like, no, actually we're not like, you know, we don't know, like he died of a drug overdose, you know, like, who knows who was there? Who knows if someone left him there? Like, who knows where the drugs came from? Yeah. They don't care. The case is closed to them. And that is far more what happens to most, you know, mysterious deaths in this country. Absolutely. A lot of people wait a long time for no resolution. Yeah, I know someone who's writing a memoir about a similar situation, which her sister, um, who'd been addicted to, um, I think, heroin, opioids, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, was died because of a sort of toxic mix of meth and heroin that she shot up. And uh, s- her sister is convinced that someone did it on purpose because she was potentially going to be a witness in a crime. Um, but the cops were just like, ah, she's just another like junkie who OD'd. Um, which gets me to my next point, which is that I think a lot of like TV shows that per- uh, sort of portray corruption within the criminal justice system, portray it as like, oh, the guilty guy got off and the system didn't. Uh, and the system's corrupt because it lets these guilty people uh, get off. But the um, reality is more that like, A, it's overloaded and, um, you know, lawyers, defense attorneys and prosecutors are all friends with one another. They know the judges and the people coming into the system like, uh, are once you're in it, you they view you as guilty. So the system's corruption, I think, is more that like um, that the system itself is the problem, not like necessarily the that rich guys can get off. I mean, yes, that's a problem, but the system more often than not, what happens is that people get railroaded into bad situations because. Um, you know, the whole thing is standing against them. Well, this leads mm-hmm. me into mm-hmm. my next little section. Um, and <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not saying this about anything that you said at all, but that true crime is making people, particularly women, paranoid. So Gawker reports in this great article called true crime is rotting our brains that Amanda turned me on to. And the writer, the writer, Emma Berkowitz, who herself was a victim of a very violent random knifing also. Yeah, it's mm. terrifying. Mm. Terrifying. Yeah, like walking the dog, getting knifed. Um, so she explores the paranoia that has evolved from our fascination with true crime. And even though she reports that true crime has actually been dropping since the 90s, you know, we're mm. currently at about a third the crime rate. And Interestingly, also, actually, men statistically are more likely to be involved in a homicide in the U.S. Yeah, they're, they're more likely to be, especially young men, are more likely to be victims of violent crime than anybody else. 
Um, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, the likelihood of you being a victim of like a random crime by a random person is so low. I mean, and Neil, you actually were saying something really interesting this, this weekend. We were talking about um, serial kill- killers and and the media and how they... they oh, s- yeah. I was, yeah. I was listening to NPR a couple of years ago, the show um, Press Play with Madeline Brandon. She, she was talking about how, like, there in the 80s, I think 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were a lot of serial killers in America, and then um, there aren't really anymore. And um, she, part of the reason she interviewed someone who had sort of done a study of it. And part of the reason is that newspapers stopped reporting um, serial killers on the front page in like this sensationalized way that they had been doing. Um, and so people mm-hmm. who are like seeking the attention that, you know, being, the a serial killer might get them um, s- that stopped being an outlet for, for that because like now the stories are buried on page six and nobody like engages in like the, you know, back and forth printing letters from the serial killer thing anymore. And, um, and so as a result, the actual number of people who are serial killers um, has dropped significantly because they were looking to be celebrities, right? They love yeah, the attention. The attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they love like proving that they were smarter than um, everybody else. Like the cat and mouse game with the cops yeah. and the, and the media and like that whole thing. And, and of course at psychopaths just, lo- just love to eat that up. And of course, if you're not going to fuel that fire or, or flame the, what is it? What is it? Um, Fan the flame, fan the flame, then it's going to be put out, and you know, they got to be, they got to turn to yeah. something else to be psychopaths about. It's true. <laughs> like, like the dark <laughs> web and being trolls. Yeah. Or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. They've already got it out <laughs> now. They just go to 8chan. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's all. Exactly. Yeah. So the, so paranoia obviously it is, is a, um, it's definitely a part of what has kind of come, I guess it's a, what would you call? Uh, a uh, side effect? Yeah, a side effect. Um, it, Neil was actually even convinced that something happened to his neighbor. Uh, <laughs> and concocted this, we kind of developed this elaborate story <laughs> yeah, of intrigue. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, we, we heard, funny. He heard her fighting a few weeks ago and he hadn't yeah. seen her. Mm-hmm. But he saw her boyfriend driving her car around. And I was like, mm-hmm. where is she? Sketchy. And, yeah. and I was like, where is she? I didn't see her for like weeks. And then one day I was just walking and I was like, man, still. And the, the windows her. of their place and the were, windows all were like out. all They were all blacked out like, um, and they hadn't been before. And then um, one day I was walking and I, she was just standing outside their kitchen. And I was like, <laughs> oh, hey, how are you? And she was like, I'm good. And, but <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I, I, in the moment did say, I think I've been listening to too much true crime because like now I'm seeing it everywhere. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I get that. You know, there's been a couple times since we moved out to the country where Dustin has had to go travel for work or something. And I've been 
home alone and I have just been on like murder watch the whole time. Like I can't sleep. You know, I'm like, someone's going to break in. They've probably been watching the house. They know he's gone. Like, you know, you're supposed to pretend that someone else is there with you. (laughs) Like I will get in my head and not sleep the whole time he's gone. Basically. That's like, that's a case for melatonin. That's just... Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, sometimes I drive up into the Angelino National Forest and, um, like, a, just, you know, at night, clear my head or whatever. And I went up there, um, I don't know, maybe a month or a month and a half ago, and I got out at the spot that I normally get out at, and it was just, like, dead silent. And I suddenly just had this feeling that I was being watched and that there was something like predatory, either a person or like an animal very close to me. And I freaked out <laughs> and I turned around and I drove back and I'm sure that there was nothing there, but I had definitely been listening to um, a true crime podcast as I drove. Yeah. Up, so. In the dark. But, yeah. And I was like, something unsettling about like sudden realization that you're around no people. And yet somehow mm-hmm. my mind goes to now I'm more vulnerable. I mean, Okay, and I'm sure that this is, um, I think the paranoia was actually probably a, uh, not necessarily paranoia, but when, a, when one of my friends was living here in LA and she got a new roommate, um, who was a, this young woman um, who was like, oh, I'm an, I'm an Instagram star, an Instagram influencer, everybody loves me, but I, you know, I... Um, I had to, you know, delete my account or something and, you know, it, 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 whatever. It it turned out, you know, that she was kind of into um, to some sex work and um, she was actually like, didn't, was making porns and things like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, she, she, she was really strange. Like she, she clearly had been taking care of a lot of her life. She didn't really understand how anything worked, like pain um, electricity bills and things like that, or, you know, very, you know, didn't really know how to really take care of herself too well. And, um, she, I mean, a, ni- a nice girl, but she, she left one day, um, and never came back. Oh my God. I remember this. Yeah. And yeah, we didn't yes. like, and I was like, I would, I would tell my friend, I'm like, you, you've got to call the police to file a missing persons report. But she would get these text messages from her. These really, mm-hmm. but not, it wasn't like, it was really, there were really weird ones. Like, um, I'm, I'm going to come and pick up my stuff. And she would just be like, I don't really trust this person. You know, she's so suspicious, which is, you know, probably a good thing. She's just like, I don't want some, some stranger to show up, you know, because I don't really trust that this is actually her. I don't think this is her. And mm-hmm. she was like, um, you need to email me this. You need to to email me this request. You have my email. Um, and then we can set up a time for you to come to get your stuff. And no one ever emailed. Weird. But they kept trying That's to weird. come and get her stuff. And so we did so go. So weird. So weird. And so we went and we actually went into, I, I, I was just, we were just like, okay, we, we, it was a month. She never returned. She, you know, she was gone. And we finally went into her room and like, just look through her things. We don't know what happened to her. And, you know, and she never filed a missing persons report. And I was just like, I should have done it. But she actually was really scared about who, whatever happened to this girl, like could happen to her. And she didn't want to, you know, get involved in all that stuff. 
So scary. I know. I remember this when this was happening, and like, I mean, I, something, something bad happened. Bad there, happened. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The text messages. It just seems like they're like trying to keep up a clean story. up, clean up yeah. the mess. Exactly. Um, man. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, now that we've spent all this time talking about how like things aren't always very clean, uh, a, a friend of mine in Chicago uh, one day was coming home. He got off at the Logan Square um, uh, L station. And two guys came up behind him and hit him over the head with a baseball bat and took his wallet. And he was in a coma for like two weeks afterwards. But they they caught the guys almost immediately because they had used his debit card. And so they could just like follow a trail of where they were going. <gasps> they got them. Um, but it uh, very, I feel like that's the exception that proves the rule more than the rule. I guess when you, when you have like some yes. violent person just randomly attacking someone on the street, I think the cops probably want to remove that threat immediately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and like, those are the kinds of cases that they do take a little bit more seriously as you know, I'm not, I, I'm not saying like, Oh, cops don't take crime no. seriously, but like they're going to really focus on doing the work there to get that solved because it's, it's a PR nightmare, yeah, right? right? Like this is the kind of stuff that like loses elections and turns favor against the police and affects funding. But, you know, then we hear about thousands of rape kits going untested yeah, forever. Yeah. You know, this is going back to that Gawker article that you shared with me, Amanda. Um, and I'm quoting Emma here uh, from the article who, you know, basically announces that stay sexy, don't get murdered, which is the tagline of one of the most popular true crime podcasts um, that, that we all that we all know and love. Um, as if being murdered is a choice women make or a risk that can be avoided if we're just smart enough. Women aren't stupid. We don't walk down dark alleys alone while wearing stilettos and lamenting loudly about how no one would miss us if we disappeared. We all take precautions. We lock our doors and let our friends know where we're going. So basically that, that stay sexy, don't murder means be aware of your surroundings and don't trust strangers. It's not particularly helpful advice for avoiding the one scenario in which women are most likely to actually be murdered, which is by their partner. It's yeah. victim blaming dressed up as, in empower, as empowerment. No one questions someone killed in a car accident, but if a woman is murdered, her story becomes a precaution. Totally, totally. I mean, I will say one thing that did, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, right? One thing that really appealed to me in the early days of listening to my favorite murder was that they also talked about like, you know, basically like fuck being polite yeah. Like, you don't need to help every person who comes up to and asks you for help or tries to, I don't know, get your attention because they could be up to something bad. And I that resonated with me in a way that was like, you know, so many of us, especially women, have been socialized to, you know, talk to anyone who talks mm -hmm. to us in public. And that has led to some bad things for people in the past. So that part of it I really appreciated. But yes, there is not enough conversation on my favorite murder about partner violence. And I, 
I would I feel like we're starting to see an awakening of like really being open and honest about the patterns of abuse and really, you know, I I think for so many people hearing someone else's mm-hmm. story and their experiences experiencing this kind of abuse and the way it unfolded and the patterns that came along with it can be really illuminating and helping others like see what's awesome happening in platform. their lives and Right. And I want, I want more of that. Also how to get help. I think because that's the hardest yes, part exactly. is getting help for that. And exactly. like what, op- what, op- for, what options do you even have? For so long, the narrative has been like to blame the victim in that mm-hmm. situation and be like, well, if I were her, I would, lo- I would leave right. him. You know, if, if he tried, did that to me once I'd pop him in the face and that'd be that. And you're like, yeah, actually no. you wouldn't because it would be this whole long process to get you to that point where you would not leave. Like that is the reality of it. I mean, one thing I'll say for Dateline intentional or otherwise 99.9% of the time, it's the partner who committed the murder. Yeah. Like I said to Dustin, like, listen, things get bad between us. Can we just get divorced and not murder each other? (laughs) Like I like just get divorced people. It's okay. You know, but like, that's the reality is like the most dangerous people in Mm -hmm. your life might be living with you but oftentimes are and on that note like going back to uh the staircase you know my margaret my ex-wife she was born in germany um and uh to americans her dad was in the air force her mom was teaching uh on a military base and um about and then her sister was born I think 13 months later and then less than a year after that, their dad died. And then their mom was like really depressed. And, um, but they had these, this couple like friend, uh, these couple friends, uh, I don't know, a married couple, whatever you call that. Um, Michael and Patty who, um, you know, their mom, like, Margaret and Martha's mom like really relied on and um, they've been very close to their, Margaret's dad as well. And so uh, when Margaret was, I don't know, four and a half or something, her mom died um, by falling downstairs and Michael uh, Peterson um, was the last person to see her alive and the person that found her. Mm-hmm. And um, so Michael, then, um, Mar- Margaret's mom had wanted Michael and his wife, Patty to be, uh, the, their caretakers in case of, um, in case of like, Tragedy. if anything happened to her. Yeah. And like, you know, it was interesting because she had, uh, something called von Willebrand's syndrome, which is like a form of hemophilia and that can cause blood clots suddenly. And. So the cause of death as like um, determined at the time was a blood clot in the brain. And so Margaret and Martha, they went to live with Patty and Michael and their marriage was uh, just falling apart. And, um, you know, they suffered a lot of abuse. Patty tried to give both of them away up to adoption, um, up for adoption numerous times to their biological family members to strangers to this one time 
they she adopted them to this elderly couple who had never had kids and like um you know just took on these two traumatized little girls and um within like i don't know short period of time uh they were like we can't keep them and so the girls went back and michael um left his patty and um moved in with this woman kathleen and at some point um uh margaret was asked like where do you want to live and she said i want to live with michael and so they went and that became like their parents michael and kathleen and um then um when margaret was growing up like michael had a terrible temper and he would like margaret um she found out later had dyslexia and adhd um and you know needed extra time to like take tests and stuff but none of her teachers or or her parents or anything um identified this in her they just like got frustrated with her being slower than they expected her to be and so one time you know michael would go in and he would like get pissed off uh with margaret for taking too long after school and she was taking tests one day and he like grabbed her by her hair and drug her out of the school and um and so like then a few years later um, when Margaret was a sophomore in college, her, uh, Kathleen died and she died at the bottom of stairs and, and there was a lot of blood. And so like this, and Michael was the last person to see her alive and the person to find her. And so it's like, there's so much true in that, like, that like, if you see this pattern and behavior of someone and you know, these things keep happening to them and like they have a temper. And like, in his case, he had PTSD. He had been in um, Vietnam and like um, had some really like awful things happen to him. And that's ultimately what his, his novels were about was like writing about Vietnam and like, um, and, but the thing is like, I was there to support Margaret because she was my partner and Margaret looked her dad in the eye afterwards and asked him, like, did you do this? And he said, no. And she believed him and she chose to believe him. And like, but I think that like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it, w- it put me in a difficult position because I was like, well, I want to be, I want to be supportive. I know Michael. He was always like very kind to me and like, um, you know, but I didn't meet him when he was in prison. And, um, he, and like now I've heard that Margaret doesn't talk to him anymore, but like, um, you know, it, it's true that these patterns emerge and like in Michael's case, it was hard. It's really hard to tell. Like I would say, um, the prosecutor was much more interested in like finding, um, getting a win than he was in finding the truth or getting to justice. And he just wanted the win. It was a high profile case. Michael had been writing a column in the newspaper in Durham, North Carolina, criticizing the DA uh, for years. And so he he had personal animus against Michael. um, And they clearly were just like throwing whatever they could against the wall to find it stick. And like in that situation, like there are no, there are no winners. Everyone is a loser in that situation. And, 
because even even if like in 2017 michael to to resolve it he he took what's called an alfred plea which is basically um that a person agrees that the state has enough um evidence to potentially convict them of a specific crime um and the state in exchange lets that person off with time served and the whole purpose of it is so that people who have been railroaded by the system and wound up uh, convicted of murder don't sue the state and get a bunch of money. And, um, mm. and because the state doesn't want to take the risk of having to retry it and lose. And then um, it's like a whole like, but then for the person, it's like, okay, I get to put this behind me. But, and part of me has always wondered, like, maybe that's the truth. Maybe it was an accident. And, um, you know, they were in an argument and something happened. But even if that's the truth, I don't think that's justice. Because this, there was nothing, like, about the process that was really about finding out the truth. It was just about, like, mm-hmm. proving a foregone conclusion. And, um, I don't know, the, but, yeah, people should definitely look, talk about intimate partner violence and um, because you're right, 99% of the time it's the, the partner that did it. And we can say husband. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yes. Well, moving into our final topic here, because I know Neil's microphone is, is, is slowly fading away. Um, so beyond entertainment value, we've seen that several of these documentaries and podcasts have shed new light on cold cases, you know, stirring up dormant drama mm-hmm. that actually led to arrests uh like kind of like we were saying is like someone out there knows something and i think about that sometimes about that that woman that went missing you know the the roommate where it's like you know yeah some people know stuff and you, you didn't you don't report at all and it's and the, the, you know i think that bringing new attention to some of these these cases can you know obviously stir up you know um conversations but also witnesses that maybe were too afraid to come forward at the time so from either from Mm -hmm. investigative prowess of the host securing testimonies and witnesses exposing and earthing clues and then of course those armchair detectives um you know it's kind of it's kind of fascinating to see some of these cases actually get solved sometimes even like as the podcast is happening like my one of my favorite podcasts um true crime pop podcasts to live and die in la you know like it's like literally being solved as as it's going on um so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in april of 2021 police investigating the disappearance of kirsten smart arrested paul flores after interviewing new witnesses found through the popular eight-part podcast your own backyard i have not listened to this and i'm like oh my gosh i must listen to this now Um, And the Murder Squad podcast was credited for helping to close a 40-year-old cold case. Um, Hmm. Through the attention of the podcast, a listener was compelled to upload their DNA to a database. And that DNA helped lead investigators to the murderer. Hmm. And in 2020, a convicted serial killer confessed to another murder on the podcast where the bodies are buried. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and in 2018, a husband was charged with his wife's murder after the Australian podcast The Teacher's Pet brought renewed attention to the case. 
I mean, it's, it, it is really interesting to see. I mean, that's just a, a few of them. I know that a lot that a lot of them are actually kind of they're stirring these things up and getting a lot more, um, a, a lot more um, attention and behind them. And so, digging deeper here into that, the armchair detectives also, which I know that Amanda you find extremely fascinating, um, and and that's ah, one of the totally. most fascinating effects of true crime is this raging community of amateur sleuths, and they like they will literally like comb through Instagram po- profiles, available clues to them, videos, you know, like they'll be, just, they'll be looking at YouTube videos and stopping them, and you know, oftentimes acting as crowdsourced investigations, all happening in these online forums. Um, and I, I, you know, Amanda, we were talking about this earlier. I think one of the, the, the most fascinating aspects of that are the people who literally quit their jobs to focus yeah. their efforts full time <laughs> yeah. on an investigation. Yep. So you see this happen a lot. Uh, and a, a lot of these two true crime investigations um, that have the help of community members who are interviewed for these, you know, um, these shows. So I feel like someone else just like has to quit their job. Um, like it becomes actually an obsession worth dropping yep. everything in your life for. And I know that obviously some of the cases are really grateful for having such dedica- dedication because they actually have solved some of the cases like don't fuck with cats. Like yep. that's all about the amateur sleuths piecing together these evidence, this evidence to solve a murder. You know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I was telling you how this is mm-hmm. a different kind of crime, <laughs> which is fraud, the whole LuLaRoe, LuLaRich documentary. And listen, I, I just, I'm a, I'm a very extra person. I need to know the whole story. So I joined <laughs> a Facebook group for people who have that's been amazing. burned by selling LuLaRoe. Um, and it's been really fascinating, actually. And just, well, like, also the the documentary. If you haven't watched the documentary, it's very good. Right, right, and it's a, it's true crime too. It's just a yeah. different kind of crime, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman in the documentary. Her name is Becca. I think Becca Peter, and she lives in Seattle. Um, and she basically has made investigating Lulu practically a full time job. I mean, she also has a washi tape store, but like she is working on this like all day, every day. She shows up in the group to talk about stuff she's found. She pays to get legal documents. She uploads, you know, interviews and stuff like, you know, from the court case, like depositions and whatnot. I mean, she is like working on it all the time and she never even sold LuLaRoe. She just <laughs> is so, so interesting. Fascinated yeah. in, about you know, fascinated by getting justice for all of these people who have been defrauded yeah. by LuLaRoe. And I think it's really, really fascinating. I mean, it's like the, a hero's work. It really is. And you know what? Like, listen, yeah. In an ideal world, if SUV were to be believed, we would never have to step up to do these kinds of things. But unfortunately that's because our justice system does not, it fails yeah. a lot of people. It fails a lot of people in a lot of different ways right? People end up in prison or on death row or even worse, executed who were completely innocent. Lives are ruined. People never feel as they, though they get justice. Victims never feel safe again. I mean, it could go on and on and on. That's why so many people f- find themselves in the role, role of amateur detective. Yep. And like, mm-hmm. honestly, I wish that your friend had called the police and filed a missing yeah. uh, person's report That's about true. her roommate. It yeah, really me concerns me. Yeah. I mean, I know that she felt unsafe, but like someone out there yeah. cared about her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really. I mean, is it too late now? I don't know. I don't I mean, even, I honestly don't even know the, per- the person's name. I've thought about it many times. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, too. yeah. Um, I mean, this this kind of. I mean, there are so many people in our country, in our world, especially women who are invisible to society. And I think about your friend's roommate being yeah. one of those people, and it makes me really, really sad. Yeah. And it's also like a really creepy story. Yeah, so creepy. Yeah. So True. if anybody who's listening wants to uh, solve that mystery for us, I would be really delighted. <laughs> I know. Of course, yeah. I'd have to, to, to find out what her name was. I, yes, I, know, that's, I think the, that's first, the hard part, right? The first question is, what's her name? Yep. Well, does anybody have any final thoughts on true crime? Oh, wait, I have one. I actually have one. You know, one thing I, and I was telling you this, that I was just like all of a sudden in the past few months, I've been seeing a lot of articles about how true crime is stupid, how it's basic, you know, it's like a pumpkin spice of media consumption, right? And while I think there are, I mean, we've been, you know, taking a really critical look at at true crime this whole time, I think we also have to remember that, like you said, true crime has a primarily female audience. And I don't want this to be yet another time that we all decide all at once it's really important to shit on things that women like, right? And label them basic, label them chuggy, label them over, label them a waste of time. Like, we just talked about how some people getting involved in these cases has led to positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, let's not forget that, you know, there is a community that forms around this, like the Murderinos. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a ton of them, and they all are friends, and they get together. And I know. They- I'm like, I really want to go to one of these. Me these too. Live Me too. Because apparently, like, there's just a bunch of amazing people there. I'm like, I would want to meet them. Like, I want friends yeah. that are Murderinos. Right, right. That it's not just about the crime. I mean... You know, I got into an argument with someone about this a long time ago where I was like, I don't think of my favorite murder as a as a crime podcast. I think it about it as like, I don't know, like social interest, like like people are telling yeah. stories, but they're also talking about themselves and sharing their mm-hmm. own stories and like the way they would have people write in with their hometown murders and talk about things like those are super did, fun. They created a community mm-hmm. on a podcast, which no one else had done before. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I mean, maybe. Maybe Joe Rogan has a community. I don't want to get involved. But like, <laughs> you know, like there's not, a date, to do with that. there's not a dateline community. Mm-hmm. There's not a forensics. I bet there's community. one on Facebook. There might be. There might I be. I bet you right. can find one, Amanda. But that's true. I, I'll, I'll <laughs> start digging. You know, I join all these random Facebook groups. I know. Totally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I just think that like the tendency to dismiss true crime is just another example of a long list of things we dismiss because women like them mm-hmm. right okay and with that that with that note i want us to end with a podcast that you recommend a true crime podcast that you love um or a couple if you have a few i'm super curious i'm always <laughs> taking uh, recommendations hold on i'm looking at my phone right now because i uh listen to so many podcasts these days Neil, do you have any that you would like to recommend? Um, yeah, I, I I particularly liked um, uh, Missing and Murdered, um, mm-hmm. and I really like Up and Vanished. Mm, I love Up and Vanished. That's a good one. I'll go. Um, I've already told you so to live and die in LA is is mm. like really great you know they came out with a second season i don't know if you know that but they just they just came out with one and neil and i have been following it and they 
they just ended it, but you can you can binge them all right now. Um, but to live and die in LA, um, and then Dead and Gone, I thought was really great oh, yeah. too. Super good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that one was about, you know, potential wrongful convictions and, you know, you know, obviously like racism and railroading and just, you know, really, but it was very interesting because it was also about the Grateful Dead. It was like, you know, the Grateful Deadheads. Yeah. Um, I thought that one was, was really good. Oh, and I also thought that um, Root of Evil was, I mean, it's kind of Oof, that messed was up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that one, especially if you live in LA, I feel like is really really you can really appreciate it an extra lot um that one is in is in the one of the wildest true crime things i've ever listened to (laughs) yeah my my friend jim produced the tv show that's based on it Mm, i haven't seen the show uh i think I'm, i'm i'm gonna reserve my opinion okay all right. I think it was on TBS or something. It was like somewhere yeah, that like, like I don't. Or yeah. Something I have no TNT. access to. Yeah. Um, I wanted to shout out Uncover, which is produced by the CBC as in it's like from Canada and every season they'll talk about a different crime or mystery. Um, but like, for example, they did a season uh, called Evil by Design, which is about Peter Nygaard, who. Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Like, big time, yeah. like, I don't know, like, low-priced fashion dude who is, like, a sexual predator uh, and engaged in all kinds of other criminal conduct. Uh, so I totally recommend that series. Every season has been phenomenal. Um, if you're looking for, like, a different kind of crime, I also recommend American Scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another one where every season is about a different a different scandal. I mean, they had one about Three Mile Island and all the sort of like gross misconduct associated with that or like the tobacco industry. Um, I learned about, finally learned and understood what Iran-Contra was. Mm. Um, so different kinds of crimes there, but I definitely leave each season feeling really smart. Aww. Oh, and lastly is Criminal. I really like oh, Criminal. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're if you're looking for a TV show that's true crime, I thought that the show The Investigation on HBO um, was really good about a woman. That was good. Uh, so good. I really liked it a lot. It's based on about a woman. Uh, this journalist named Kim Wall who was interviewing like a guy who was a billionaire, and then oh, um, she the died. Submarine on his, guy. Yeah. 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 It was the. I just thought it was really good because it's one of the ones that didn't doesn't focus on the murderer it focuses on the the people around them um but isn't there one called the investigator also that was yes that was british and that was like that was pretty good i liked it but it was definitely a little bit more um showy showy (laughs) yeah i would say the investigation is like is very artful Mm -hmm. but but Mm -hmm. i really liked it well i'm gonna put these in the show notes so if you didn't jot them down you can just go to the website thedepartment.world and we all have the list of our recommendations for you yeah yeah i'm i'm excited i have a whole bunch of new ones to listen to now which is good because i kind of felt like i listened to all the podcasts ever so <laughs> we have to, like crowdsource true crime podcasts. yeah seriously like- i mean there are so many i was telling you that i was listening to one true crime podcast recently and i can't remember what it was but i remember thinking like this is not a good podcast i was telling you i was like it was so boring yes um and then there was an ad for another one that was like happy hour crimes or something happy (laughs) hour murder and i was like (laughs) that's tricky (laughs) it was like 
two of the best things in life drinking and true crime and i was like okay that's okay. it it's gone too yep. far it true crime <laughs> glass of wine but what <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's not do that. Come on, guys. Let's not ruin true crime. Actually, wait, there's one more podcast. And it's sometimes it's true crime. Sometimes it's just the creepy factor. I really like this one. It's called Radio Rental. And it oh, has, yeah. So um, good. Oh, what's his name? Who's the host? Rain Wilson. Rain Wilson. Ah. And they had this one that, that, that came out like a week or two ago. That they even had photos of it on their Instagram, and it was basically about this like woman who was running in Hawaii, and her friend was taking pictures of her, and they went back and looked at the pictures, and there is this like kind of creepy ghost man, what? like watching her, and then then like they actually had it because it, uh, the 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 camera had was on like kind of live action. They actually watched it walking and moving. It was so freaking okay, that creepy. Is chilling. I'm gonna have yeah. to check that out. Chilling. Yeah, like, it was, like it was really good. It's so good. But all all of them are really well produced, and they're basically they're crowdsourced um, stories, and they're all creepy and so good. Sounds good. Yeah, not this, really true crime, but but just weird. Which you so know. weird and good. Yeah, but well, this created so by the people who who make up and vanish so it's related to oh yeah. so you know it's good yeah i think up and vanish mm-hmm. is is really doing some of the best work mm-hmm. out there agreed um well thank you so much neil for coming and hanging out with us this was yeah, really great yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and telling me. all telling all your stories which i think is yes. it's really it's really interesting to get the perspective um of, of someone who was on the other side who was on the receiving end or really knew someone who was on the receiving end of of just like such a um a phenomenon yeah. i mean i think i i think it's really important for people to hear those stories mm-hmm. because i think that we tend to forget that there yeah. are all these other people who aren't the victim of the crime yeah. who are who are suffering who are yeah you know, experiencing a lot of pain and loss and confusion and they don't Being know what happened of. either. Yeah, yeah. that too. Yeah, they don't know. Right. And, and like, it's, it's hard. And, and like so much of it, I think probably, especially for women, but um, is scrutinizing their behavior and mm-hmm. like the, the, it becomes like, well, why are you doing this? Why are you standing by this? Because why are you doing that? It's like, well, they don't, they're just trying to like do their best in that situation. And it's traumatizing. I mean, having someone die and then like having your parent be accused of that murder and like, and that's traumatizing. It's just too easy for people to say like, well, as a person, totally not in any way involved with the situation. <laughs> yeah. If you are in any way showing up to court for, for your dad, you must not have loved your mom. Right. And you're right. like, what? Like, come on. Stuff is complicated. All right. Well, everyone, we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.